It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show. I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Joe Weisenthal and Romain Vostick on Bloomberg Television. What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, I sat down with Dow CEO Jim Fiddling for a wide-ranging interview in the next installment of my new CEO Spotlight series. We talked about everything from trade to dealing with economic slowdowns to automation. But I started by asking him about what it takes to be a successful leader of such a global business. Exactly. We, uh, we manufacture in about 40 countries and we sell in 160. How do you take a long-term perspective of steering a business through the competitive nature that it is, the, the disruptive nature, whether it comes from politics to technology? How, what do you see as the opportunities right now that lie in front of Dow? Well, we're a very long cycle business, so the products that we make and sell touch just about everything that you use every day. And um, they're needed around the world, so we get growth kind of two ways, through innovation and the next generation of materials, and also through geographic growth as developing economies come up, they need our materials to build infrastructure and to create the kind of life that we have today. And so we've got to keep up with both of those. And it requires us to think about, you know, what are the long-term impacts? Where do we want to make our investments? Where are the natural resources and the human resources that we need to make those investments? And how do you see past the immediate concern about one economy slowing versus another, one particular area growing faster than another, when you have to have a decade, two decade long perspective rather than a six month quarter by quarter? Right. I think most people today would say that the lack of certainty is what causes people to kind of pull in and, mm. and slow down investments. Um, we have to look at that and we have to look at the long-term trends. So in, a, in big economies like the United States and China, you know, typically you want to be in those markets, manufacturing in those markets for the domestic economy. Um, in the U.S., uh, we've invested here because long-term we can also have a low cost and we can export. Um, in some countries, when you make an investment, you can't afford to export, mm -hmm. but you want to be in the local market. So every country is a little bit different. Uh, you have to take a, a long-term view of that. 
But you have to look at stability. You have to look at, you know, what, what has been the course over 20 years of that country. Mm-hmm. Uh, eyes wide open, what are you getting into? And today, more and more, are you going to go alone or are you going to go with a partner somewhere? It's almost a, you have the like perfect bird's eye perspective from a country when it comes to their growth, their culture, but also their, their government, their, their currency. It, it, what's also amazing about Dow is its legacy is having been, at one point, one of the best foreign currency yeah. houses out there. I mean, True. move aside any key bank, you were doing it all. How, how do you think about that? How do you run that from a, from a central perspective? Well, we, we require natural resources to be able to grow our businesses. So if you think about uh, where we come in, typically we need oil and gas, um, related natural resources, in some cases not not just oil and gas, in our silicones business, quartz, other raw materials, to make our products. So that's pretty fundamental to the country, and in most countries it's a very important part of their economy, Mm. and it's tightly connected to how the government wants to run. Uh, It's a strategic advantage if they have a national oil and gas company, it's a big strategic advantage for them, so we want to be part of that. And then obviously, through growth, you know, during the period of the 60s, really, and 70s, Dow went through a massive geographic growth expansion. And during that time, you know, we built a model, which was to operate a core financial house, kind of a central bank, Bank of Dow. Um, And that allowed us to look at each of the places we had exposure and how are we going to manage that currency risk. And, and, And we you know, in some countries we give credit to customers, in some countries we sell in U.S. dollars. But that whole, whole portfolio of risk is managed on a 24-7 basis in Dow. So on the front end, we manage feedstock, physical, financial hedging, and all the risk that we have there because it's a big part of our cost. And on the customer end, we manage the uh, currency risk and that, and that risk. And currency risk also uh, from a project standpoint. You know, mm. when you're building billion-dollar facilities, what's the currency risk on a three to five year capital project and who's going to manage that? And so is it about having the right people to ensure that you're a step ahead of the curve in that it's, respect? It's all about people, right? In our business, whether it's on the financial side, uh, whether it's on the research side or the process engineering side, you know, it's all about the people that make it happen. Uh, we have a very, very strong finance team. Mm-hmm. Um, people that come to work in Dow, you know, in, in financial planning, treasury, credit management, they're getting the same kind of experience. They might be here at one of the big international banks, multinational banks, uh, working on the trading floor and treasury floor there. So when you're navigating the ebbs and flows of people worrying about certain currencies, people worrying about certain politics, but how do you... How do you see your role in steering the business like that? How do you think about it on a daily basis? Well, you have to you have to try to stay in front of it. And so you try to make moves before the market catches you. Mm-hmm. And um, you try to take a look at what's happening with your trends on credit risks. Um, watch what's happening with the currencies. Make moves to counter it. We trade a lot of times materials in and out of the country. So sometimes if a country puts in uh, currency restriction, you can get caught. So how are you going to manage cash and liquidity in the country under a different currency regime? You have to stay on top of that. And it's a lot about relationships. So if you have operations, you have to have people on the ground that are close mm. uh, and they have to be talking 
to the people in power and understand what's happening and be able to move and act on that. Do you think, how hard is it when you are inherently a multi-global business, but there seem, the world seems to be becoming less global in its nature? We grew up as a, um, a U.S. company and then we expanded. And in the first wave of growth, Dow was very regional. So Dow Europe was created. Mm. And then Dow Asia Pacific and Dow Latin America. And now we've been in those regions for, in, in most of them, for more than 70 years. And so it still has a bit of a regional nature to it. So we manage Europe from our headquarters in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. uh, it communicates on a daily basis back with headquarters here. Uh, we manage Latin America out of Sao Paulo, Asia Pacific out of uh, Hong Kong. And so we've always had you know, a regional implementation to a global strategy. Everything that we do happens on the ground in a, in a country anyway. Um, but the regulations tend to be driven, especially in Europe, more regionally um, and more and more bilateral types of arrangements than multilateral types mm -hmm. of arrangements. So that creates a lot more demands on the people on the ground locally. If I was to step into a Dow plant in Asia and then quickly wing across as you do on a weekly basis, then fly yeah. over to Latin America and then go to the one in Switzerland, for example, would it feel the same? How is the culture? You would know you were in a Dow facility, the, the culture, the way the people act, uh, the way they treat each other. It starts with safety and ethics mm -hmm. um, being the first thing, and then it cascades right through the organization. So um, all the trappings around culture, like how we treat each other, um, how we treat employees, benefits, how we take care of each other, uh, how we work with the governments. Um, I'll give you a good example on environment, health, and safety. We've always had a, we've always had a policy that we're going to follow Dow standards or the local government that we work in, whichever is the more stringent. Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, when we go overseas and we play abroad, our standards are more stringent than the local government. And so you'll go into our operations and you'll see us following a Dow standard, not a minimum standard at the local government. I think that's a good thing because what we're doing is essentially exporting best practices and we're helping the industry and we're teaching them what we know about how to run safe and reliable operations. And that comes through when you're talking to our people. And you're having to invest in your people as well. I mean, is this almost the, the number one distinction factor versus you and competitors? Is it about investment in talent? Is it about investment in equipment? How are you staying ahead of the curve? I think um, investment in people is, is part of it. Um, you know, hiring in obviously is a big part of it. So you've got to, you have to have a culture that people want to come into. And it has to be more than just being about making money at the company. It has to be about what, what is your purpose? We set our ambition as a company to be the most innovative, customer-centric, inclusive, and sustainable material science company in the world. We want to be the best in that category. So when you go in, you're hiring people in that want to be in that environment, and then you've got to train them to be able to do it. Um, that attracts a certain kind of people to want to come in. And then the other things that we're doing that really drive training are taking our operations to another, le another level from a digital standpoint mm -hmm. and a reliability standpoint. Um, digital also in terms of how we interface with customers. And this is really driving everybody to up their game. You know, how, how do we work more with 
automation, process control, robots, drones, um, Amazon-like service to our customers. All of that is new capability that's coming in and that requires new and different kinds of talent. And a talent that embraces it rather than fears it. How do you ensure that you're persuading those that you work with that they're not going to be replaced by robots, they're going to be enhanced by them, for example? Right. I'm not a believer that we're going to wipe whole categories of jobs uh, out of the equation you know, by, by going to automation and, and digital. We're going to change the way that people work. Uh, we've seen changes, you know, in my time by automating transactional systems. We've seen changes in, for example, the number of accountants that we'd have at the company versus what we have today mm -hmm. because the accountants that we have today are much, much more productive. Mm -hmm. We're going to see some of those changes in the workforce, but we're also going to see an elevation of the skills. So a, a great example, if we take a, a plant out of service to do some maintenance, we typically go inside that plant and send a person in to inspect and do everything. Mm. That sometimes puts them in harm's way. If we can do that with drones and robots, yes. we get more productivity, we get it done faster, we get a digital record of everything that's been inspected. It's a better way for us to operate. Last year, we did a thousand of those inspections by robots and drones. I think we'll be at 100% of those inspections by the time I'm done with my tenure as CEO. I, I mean, it's just possible. Our manufacturing people two years ago would have said this is going to be difficult. Today they say we can do them all that way. You said just at the beginning there that it's not all about profit. It's still a large part about profit. It's interesting that the Business Roundtable has been trying to put forward this view that it's not just one stakeholder anymore. It's not just about improve, impressing the investor base. You've got many to impress now. How do you find that balancing act and, and how to ensure that you're right, hitting your right priorities? Profit is, um, is very important. Cash is king at the end of the day, um, and that's, that's important. I think what the BRT said and what I signed on to was we have to do both. Mm. You have to, from an uh, environmental, social, you know, perspective, you've got to be delivering. You've got to create a good environment to work in. You've got to create a sustainable environment. Investors want that, mm. but you have to deliver profits. And I think in a way it raises the bar on the company because it says, I've got to find those solutions in the marketplace from a sustainability perspective that people are going to want to invest in, and they have to deliver better profit than my competitors. Mm. We're all benchmarked against our peers. If we're going to win in our sector, we've got to give better performance and a better return to those shareholders and the peers. But what the BRT was saying is the other element to that outperformance has to be how good are you doing for the society. And you've got to, in some ways, work with your competitors, work with those peers. Tell us how you're doing that, particularly when we talk about environmental elements. This is a huge part of your thinking. I think at one point you said you spent 25% right. of your time thinking about climate change. How are you working with peers to drive that? Well, we're working on um, a great example is the Alliance to End Plastic Waste, mm -hmm. which is a, uh, an entity that we formed last year. Uh, there are more than 42 companies in it today. We raised a billion and a half dollars to fund projects that are going to deal with ocean plastic waste. Yeah. Um, and they'll also deal with on-land plastic waste. And it was driven by, obviously, the, the groundswell of um, people being upset about how much plastic was finding its way into the ocean and, and harming marine life. 
Um, but in a bigger fashion, it's about closing the loop on the circular economy. We have a, we have a linear economy today. Mm. Um, people buy and consume things. Um, they throw it away in the trash. They might put it into recycle, but a lot of it probably doesn't get recycled. And so if we're going to close the loop on that economy, we had to come up with a different approach. Um, in U.S. and Europe, we're fortunate that we have great infrastructure to deal with this. But in the developing world, they have nothing. Mm -hmm. And they've grown so rapidly that they can't keep up. So we're going to deal with infrastructure development, new technologies to close the loop, uh, creating products out of the recycled materials so that there's a demand from the environment, a different value equation. And every time we do that, basically, we're using plastics again to feed the cycle versus going back and drilling another new fossil fuel well mm. to feed the plastics growth. Do you feel that this is now a company responsibility, say, rather than a government responsibility? Can companies actually be that much more nimble, work together that much more easily to and see a groundswell and react to it? And will it only be groundswells that force that? Or will you be able to start foreseeing issues before perhaps there is a public backlash? Well, I think companies have to take the lead because there's a lot of technology involved. Mm. And so we put this alliance together to be the entire value chain. So we have waste management companies like Veolia and Suez in there. We've got all, all the major resin manufacturers. We've got packaging producers, people that convert our products into packages, brand owners retailers, and governments, and NGOs. Hmm. And so the idea was everybody's got a role to play, but nobody can probably tackle this alone. So let's say you're in the Philippines and you've got a, a beach that's got, you know, a, a, just an open, I wouldn't even call it a landfill, just a place where they've dumped plastic and it's going to wash out into the ocean. They don't have a capability to manage it. They need to know what kind of infrastructure, what kind of a system do we need to put in place? They're going to need help from all of us, the waste management companies, ourselves. So if, if I'm going to collect this now and recycle it, what technologies am I going to use? What products can I make out of it? Maybe I have an energy need on the island. Maybe some of it I need to go waste to energy. Um, that's a collective solution, and that's the reason we, we created a whole value chain alliance out of it. It's got to be a huge public-private partnership. There are estimates that 20 to 30 billion, maybe higher, will need to be invested in infrastructure, and probably the same amount of money will need to be invested in downstream creating those new products that people will want to buy. And we're starting to see those projects take off now, demonstration size, but then once we prove them out, we'll scale them up. How do you ensure, as you clearly, plastic isn't going anywhere anytime soon, so you've got to ensure that you have this mm -hmm. sort of circle of life, as you say, a complete way of ensuring that it can be as efficient as possible. But then you say there's going to be new products. How are you staying ahead in terms of the R&D? Yeah, so I'd say a couple of things on new products. I go to my plastics group and say, anything that we make that goes into the value chain needs to be fully recyclable. If you look at some of the materials that are made today, they're hard to recycle materials. So when you get to the end of life, there's a limit to how much you could put back into a circular economy. So that drives a lot of research on the catalyst end and on the process end in terms of how do I make a homogenous polymer that has all the properties of a, maybe a multi-layer film put into one polymer that's fully recyclable. 
On the other end, we're working a lot on taking the plastics and um, recycling them. Mechanical recycling is the thing people know the best. You take the plastic, you chop it up, and you melt it again and make mm -hmm. plastic. Uh, so for thermoplastics, that's the way to go. Uh, we have several projects now on chemical recycling. So you take that plastic and you convert it back into an oil. Um, maybe the oil's good enough quality to be used in fuel. Or uh, we're doing a project right now in the Netherlands with a company called Phoenix Ecogy Group. Uh, we're going to convert that back into oil that can go to the cracker and then make plastics again. So that would be the full circle. So both ends need technology investment to drive it. And then we've got to work on the business model, which needs a little bit of innovation, too. Um, it can't just be the linear economy, which is all this waste goes to a landfill and it's X dollars per ton to go into the landfill. You've got to create a value driver that people want to recycle that material. A consumer, I think you'll find, wants to. In a lot of cases, they don't know what to do. And we also don't make, need to make it difficult on yeah. them, right? Make we it easy for me to feel good about myself. Exactly. You don't need to sort through 20 grades of material and sort it all at home, put it all into the same truck, and then it gets resorted again, right? Yeah. Take it all to a facility that can sort it, get the quality right, have multiple ways to treat it, and maybe create a product out the back end that somebody will pay for. Is it hard when the consumer cares less or more in different parts of the globe when you're serving so many? I actually think they care just about everywhere. Sometimes they're not aware of the impact that they have. So uh, we have a project in the Ganges right now. And, and historically, the Ganges was a very religious place. Yeah. And you know, even before the days of plastics, a lot of people would just take their household waste to the Ganges and drop it in. And now in the days of plastics, they'll take a plastic bag full of household waste to the Ganges and drop it in. That's a cultural change that has to happen. I'm, I'm sure nobody thinks that they're damaging the environment by doing that. Mm -hmm. It's just a practice. But there's also society that takes that plastic, sorts it, picks it, and can recycle it. And then we can put projects on the ground locally that can convert that back to fuels that can be used locally. And we can do two things. We can stop the waste going into the Ganges and create a bit of a social ecosystem there that supports development in that little community. Um, so I, I think consumers, um, what they know about the issue is very surface level. Mm -hmm. But as you explain it to them, they go, oh, well, this is easy. We could, we could be part of this. Uh, in Thailand, when the whale washed up on the beach and died, our partner at Siam Cement there, um, we've been partners for almost 40 years, said we have a real issue. And I was over there and I said, you know, we've been working on some projects to take recycled plastics and put them into asphalt for roadways. You're doing this massive project from Bangkok to Rayong. Why don't we recycle this road with, or pave this road with recycled plastics? So within like three months, they're doing it. Hmm. And they're working with the local university to study the condition of the road, the quality of the road, see if they can make a better asphalt surface out of it. When when they announced it, you know, the, the public response was, this is fantastic. This is a way I can connect, you know, what I'm doing to something that the government's doing. And it's going to be better than that material going to the ocean and creating death in the marine life. Mm. So that's, I think when you make that connection with the consumer, you'd be surprised at how many of them will be part of the solution. 
Let's talk about connections not only with the consumer but also with your own workforce. And this is something that I know you, on a personal level, are passionate about inclusion, diversity. You have led the way just by example, the fact that you are one of the few openly gay chief executives out there, particularly in industry. But this is something that's been in Dow's sort of DNA for a decade or so now in terms of their ability to outperform when it comes to inclusivity. How do you ensure that you sustain that from a cultural perspective? It's, um, I think how we treat each other is a um, critical part of our culture and how open and um, how inviting we are to others. So if we're gonna be the most innovative company in our space, we have to have an open mind about where the solutions are and we have to be able to collaborate with just anybody that's out there. You, we have no control in our lives over who has the best idea, but we can shut people out of discussions and we can exclude them when we need their voice at the table. And so from a very base level, it's about how we treat each other and how we invite them in. Um, it isn't, we've moved the discussion to inclusion versus diversity because mm -hmm. our experience was we could manage diversity in numbers and drive numbers, but was it sustainable? Because if I brought, if I took a team of 10 people and I brought in one diverse member to the team, it's gonna be very hard for them to assimilate into that team. Yeah. The, other, the other nine are going to, do what they were doing and that one is gonna stand alone. But if I create an inclusive culture where all of those members want to hear from the other one, they want to hear what's going on outside, they have a curiosity that is beyond their normal boundaries and they're not afraid of getting outside of their comfort zone, then that's a very different kind of an environment and you're going to invite a different kind of people in. People are gonna to wanna to come to work for you that have a different way of thinking. That's what's gonna make you the best. And study after study shows that if you create that environment, you're gonna make better decisions. You know, you're gonna make 80 or 90% better decisions than a company that's less diverse. That's the driving force and that's what we've gotta do. How does one accomplish that? If I'm sat listening to you, I'm an executive of a smaller business and wanting to know from the ground up, right. how do I start? ensuring that I've got an inclusive environment? Well, we build a, we're trying to build a, a network of, of safe zones, I would say, where people can go have open dialogue without any fear of retribution. So we, we've used employee resource groups for a number of years. We have 10 of them around the company. Um, they cover everything from different kinds of ethnic diversity, uh, gender diversity, LGBT, people with disabilities, veterans that are coming in, um, our most experienced workers, 50 plus, hmm. and our workers that have joined in our less than five years with the company. And then we match them up and we get them to work on real life issues. But we also encourage them to get together and talk openly about the challenges that, that they face at work because we all gotta be realistic when you go to work. You don't experience inclusivity every day. Mm -hmm. You experience the opposite. And so we've got to open up, talk about those things, and then go tackle them. Um, we have a, an all ERG conference every year where we bring in members globally yeah. from all of those ERGs. They share their experiences. We bring in outside speakers to share their experiences, and then we take that back to the organization. And you move it. Um, it never moves as fast as you want to, but you move it individual by individual. People working with people, um, kind of heart-to-heart -heart issues, 
and it starts to show up in things that happen every day. So last weekend when the floodwaters hit uh, Houston, Beaumont area, we have a plant in Sabine. It's a, it's a relatively new plant for us, uh, came in with the DuPont uh, merger. And um, we've been through this before on the Gulf Coast. So a group of our Louisiana employees spent the whole weekend basically loading up dehumidifiers, box fans, bleach, insect repellent, everything you would need. And they mobilized. And we've got 25 trailers going over to help displace families. Wow. They went over yesterday and they fed a thousand people at the site. They basically had a big Cajun cookout to feed people because they didn't have any way to cook. And they were so busy working on their homes, there was no, no time to even think about it. Um, that's, hard to, that's hard to build, but that's the kind of camaraderie and the kind of bond that they have. If they'll do that for each other, they'll do great things for customers too. Can you replicate that sort of inclusivity no matter what part of the globe you're in? Because a lot of the time we're talking how businesses have to almost move ahead of the curve of governments and you have done to a large extent federal law here when it comes to LGBT sometimes it's behind right. where DAO is. How do you replicate that globally? Yeah, we do on, on rights and on employee benefits. Sometimes uh, we'll go into a, a country and we'll be ahead of the curve. Um, I remember living in Thailand at a time where we had to go testify uh, with the government, with some local friends in Thailand, about the acceptability for a woman to work in the chemical process industry. There were actually laws on the books that said women shouldn't be allowed to work in the chemical process industries. And the head of the Petroleum Institute of Thailand, a, a woman herself, um, a, a very strong supporter, got a group of us together and we went and testified to say this is these laws are archaic and they need to be changed uh, so we can drive it that way on lgbt issues we have to be careful um, we don't want to put employees at risk but at the same time we want to open people's eyes to the need to accept them mm. so it's a it's a balancing act there but on on gender issues um, that's universal. We, we run into those kind of battles everywhere. Do you think this will be your legacy, will be Dow's legacy in terms of inclusion, but also being such a key component of material science? Or I, I, hope, um, I hope my legacy is we put Dow back on top in the industry. Um, we're, we're different, and I think it's okay to be different, but you have to perform. And so from a performance standpoint, we need to be back on top. Investors need to see us that way and, and review us that way. Um, we have to be the place that everybody wants to come to work. And if we're that place, then the customers are also going to want to come to do business with us because we'll be the most innovative uh, in the industry. Um, that's what we do best. Um, we're, we're, not, we're one of the only chemical companies that's not tied to an oil and gas company. And I think that's allowed us the freedom to do what we need to do in our space and to take risks and be more innovative. And I want to see us get back to that. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. 
so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. Then Scarlett sat down with another executive, one very new to the job. Tina Chen is taking the reins as president and CEO of Time's Up, the advocacy organization born out of the Me Too movement. Tina is a lawyer and the former chief of staff of First Lady Michelle Obama, and most recently worked on the organization's Legal Defense Fund. With Time's Up now nearly two years old, Scarlett started by asking Tina well, how the group's mission has evolved and changed since its founding in 2017. We started, um, as you said, you know, at right at the Golden Globes in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein allegations and reporting. Um, our first major project was, as we announced that day, the creation of the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, which I helped put together. And that's why our first mission was to really support victims who were coming forward, both those who were perhaps getting sued by their, the people they were accusing, you know, and getting them defense, um, and also for low-income women who are pursuing claims of sexual harassment, because we discovered that there thousands of low-wage workers out there who cannot find an employment lawyer who can afford to take their case because their wages are so low. So the recovery is low. And the National Women's Law Center took the Legal Defense Fund on. We raised $24 million. Um, We've had over 800 lawyers step up to volunteer to help. And more than 3,600 people have been connected to lawyers or public relations um, support for their cases. And so, you know, we've grown. That was our first step. But now, you know, we want to attack the root cause of sexual harassment. You know, sexual harassment occurs when you have workplaces that are not really diverse and inclusive. So the real solution to ending sexual harassment is to create better workplaces. Mm-hmm. You know, so that means fighting for equal pay and mm-hmm. fighting for paid leave and you know, flexibility in scheduling and making sure that women but also LGBT workers, disabled workers, people of color, you know, advance and are represented at all levels of our companies. Well, women are leading more and more companies and organizations. I think about auto manufacturers like General Motors or tech companies like IBM or even the European Central Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Do you see evidence that these private and public organizations and institutions are prioritizing gender equality and changing workplace culture? Or do you worry that their leadership is happening at a time of such massive change overall that tackling this inequality ends up getting subsumed by more immediate pressures like turning a profit or uh, preventing a global recession? Well, the one thing that I have seen in the last two years is a willingness and an awareness on the part of CEOs and companies on how important these issues are to the bottom line, right? They have now seen in graphic detail the enterprise risk that they can suffer if they don't pay attention to these, if they let a problem or a problem executive go undisciplined, Mm. you know, and all of a sudden now this isn't just a singular problem. This is a problem that's going to affect your entire bottom line, the entire future of your company. And more than that, you know, we're in a tight labor market, right? We're in the lowest unemployment levels in 50 years. And that means there's a war for talent going on out there. Women are more than 50% of college graduates now. If you want talent, then you've got to attract and retain and promote women uh, to be successful. So I think there's a direct relationship to those 
pressures to be profitable, to be more successful, is to invest in your workforce. This is a knowledge economy, and yeah. the companies that really invest in their workers and build better workplaces and retain the best workers, I think they're the ones that are going to succeed. And it's something we hear from our guests a lot when we talk about the priorities, especially when the economy eventually does start to slow down and um, other priorities such as growing the bottom line and making sure revenue growth doesn't falter take precedence. Talk a little bit about the financial support for the organization, because time's up no longer in the headlines on a daily basis, insofar as um, we're pretty familiar with the themes, and it's become part of the national conversation. New allegations about Harvey Weinstein no longer surprise people the way they did two years ago. How do you keep the trajectory of support, of interest, of donations moving up and to the far right? Well, that's going to be one of my jobs as <laughs> the, the new CEO and president. But, you know, I, interest has not lagged. You know, one of the things I'm so excited to announce as part of my coming on to this new job is we are we're just the recipient of a generous grant from Melinda Gates and Pivotal Ventures to support the creation of an impact lab at Time's Up, where we're going to be able to do cutting edge research um, and data collection on the best policies and practices out there to really change workplaces. You know, we know enough, and you know this here at Bloomberg, there's a lot of data out there on how to manage a tech company, how to manage your supply chain. There's not a lot of data on there on what, on what actually works mm -hmm. to do and build better workplaces that are truly safe, respectful, and equitable. And that's what we're going to get to build. So we've really got that investment. So, you know, interest has not lagged. We still have, you know, millions of small donors and large donors who are interested in this work. Um, and we're going to keep growing that. You mentioned uh, the fundraising you did for the Signature Legal Defense Fund, which connects victims of sexual uh, harassment in the workplace with lawyers. Last year, the fund added, what, $2 million to bring the total to $24 million. Now, the skeptic might say that some momentum, at least by this metric, is waning. What are you going to be doing to, to get more money? You mentioned small donors. Is that the way forward? Well, I would challenge the skeptic and say we are an organization that's not even two years old, you know, and has have raised, you know, you know, tens of millions of dollars already for a cause from donors as small as two and three dollar donors to, you know, six figure donors. And, you know, we are going to keep growing that. There is tremendous interest and tremendous de desire. You know, and I think it's because this is something everybody experiences. The EEOC tells us that as many as 85 percent of women in the workplace have experienced sexual harassment in some form or another. So this is something that everyone realizes is an issue. Yeah. Um, and what we need to do is give them solutions and help, you know, get them to invest in those solutions. Now, you'll be opening up a new office in Chicago to add to your locations in New York, in Washington, and in Los Angeles. How do you overcome the perception that advancing gender equality is not as important in the heartland as it is along the coasts? Well, I think we keep talking to workers and keep supporting them. You know, several of our cases, for example, you know, one of the cases that Time's Up Legal Defense Fund is funding is on behalf of a nuclear power plant worker, you know, that's in the heartland. Um, you know, we've continued to support, you know, workers, you know, in all industries in all across the country. Um, this is not just a coastal issue. This isn't just a low-wage issue or a, you know, C-suite issue. This really affects everyone in every industry. The people who come to the Times of Legal Defense Fund, for example, represent more than 60 different industries. So this is really everywhere. It's not concentrated in one sector or another. It's not even con concentrated in the private sector. Mm. It's in the not-for-profit sector. It's in the political sector. Um, this is pretty pervasive and everywhere. So we're going to be everywhere to combat it. 
What do you think is the biggest misperception when it comes to Time's Up or Me Too for that matter? Um, you know, probably that it is just about sexual harassment because mm -hmm. I think I want to reemphasize that the core to solving sexual harassment is to build better workplaces at the at, at its very base, you know, meaning we really have to treat workers better across the board. So we're really in the fight for pay equity. You know, we've mm -hmm. teamed up with the U.S. Women's National Team, the soc our incredible championship soccer team, um, in their fight for equal pay for themselves. But to the credit of those players, they are extending themselves to say they're fighting for equal pay for everyone. So we have an initiative called Time's Up, Pay Up, mm -hmm. you know, to raise funds and awareness around the equal pay fight. You know, we're standing besides our LGBT workers this week the Supreme Court is hearing this case on whether work you know an employer can simply fire a worker for being transgender or gay you know we're combating that you know we need to make sure we've got workplaces that are you know welcoming to everyone um, and we're going to keep fighting for things like pay equity um, and you know and paid leave um, making sure women are able to rise so see you know in, they're in the c-suite you know they're in the boards um, you know, you asked about, you know, what, what about CEOs and leaders and increasing numbers? Although we've got more women stepping into these roles, it's still the case that 95% of the CEOs of the Fortune 500 yeah. are men. So we Don't need, we, we need men to be part of the solution. You've been fighting for gender equality and workers' rights for four decades now. You first helped to rewrite criminal sexual assault laws in Illinois when you were at the National Organization of Women. Then you were a partner at big-time law firms, whether it was Skadden Arps or Buckley Sandler later on. In between, you were in Washington working at the Obama White House, serving uh, First Lady Michelle Obama as her chief of staff. It's not often when the national conversation converges with something that you've been working for and towards your entire life. Talk about how everything has culminated into this moment and why this moment is so critical right now to to really make hay while the sun shines. Well, Scarlett, you're right. I have been at this. You know, I've not only been fighting for these issues, I've lived these issues. I was a single working mom my entire career. Um, so I've kind of lived that tightrope that you walk when you're a single working mom between home and work. Um, and yet, you know, I had resources, right? I was a partner at a big law firm. Mm -hmm. And um, I can only imagine how impossible the tightrope is to navigate if you're a low-wage worker, you're existing on minimum wage, you don't even have paid sick days to take off if you're sick or your child is sick. Um, so that's why I really was privileged to be able to work on those issues in the Obama White House, um, to put together the first ever White House Summit on Working Families. Uh, so I've been passionate about it. But you're right, we are at a singular moment, one that I've not seen in the entire four decades I've been working on this, where the national conversation for two years has been sustained and focused on the importance of workplaces and the unfairness that women in the workplace face um, and a real willingness on companies and everyone to fight that. And that's why I decided to step out of my comfort zone, <laughs> out of my law firm, you know, lawyer career to become full time, you know, the president and CEO to lead this fight at Time's Up. I'm really thrilled to be able to do it right now. Final question to you, how to prevent a backlash to Me Too? Or is one inevitable that you just kind of let it ride out and return to the core issues? You know, I don't think you let our backlash ride out. I think you've got to confront um, folks who are saying, oh, it's over, or my solution is I'm never going to be in a room alone with a woman. Mm -hmm. You know, and to say, no, 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 that's not the solution. Um, that this is for your daughters. Mm -hmm. This is for your wife, your partner, your spouse. Um, this is for you. You know, men are going to benefit for this. If we've got workplaces that are safer 
and more equitable, men are going to benefit from that too. You know, this is something where everyone can, you know, can profit, where everyone can succeed. Um, that's what we're fighting for. All right. So it's not a zero sum game then. It is absolutely not a zero sum game. You know this. We're all about growing the economy here at Bloomberg, right? So that's what we need to do. And the key to growing the economy, I think this is what Melinda Gates was writing about in her recent Harvard Business Review piece, is the way to grow the economy, the way to get successful is actually to give women more power and influence. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.